Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guests, Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, my friends and colleagues here at Politico, and celebrating their one-year anniversary writing the Daily Playbook email that, if you're not subscribing to it already, you should, to help you know what's going on and what to make of it. Jake and Anna just signed a book deal to write about Trump and Washington through the lens of Congress, where both have years under their belts reporting. They're talking to members of the House and Senate and their staffs every day, attempting to put the pieces together every morning and every afternoon for the second playbook email the day that they've launched. So I asked them, do people on the Hill, particularly Republicans who gripe about President Trump a lot behind closed doors, like him? Do they respect him? One of the dynamics they described was how rank-and-file members like him a lot, and certainly a lot more than Democrats on the Hill ever like Barack Obama, and how that's led to a change in the ecosystem of members rushing to do small appearances on cable news, no matter what those are, even in the middle of the day, in the hopes that they'll catch the eye of the man who spends a lot of time in the White House watching TV. Jake and Anna have an interesting, weird window into Washington. Every morning, they're up at 4 a.m., G-chatting each other, putting together an email that most people read first thing when they wake up, a lot of them before they ever get out of bed. It's a bizarrely intimate experience for the way that people consume what they're putting out, and that leads to some bizarre, intimate dynamics. Remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Great episodes coming up, including with North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, Alaska Governor Bill Walker, and comedian Maz Jobrani. And follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at Isaac Dover. And email me with your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com. That's Isaac, I-S-A-A-C at Politico.com. And now, our conversation with Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman. Tell me about your life these days. It's been a year. Uh, are you guys up at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning? What, what, what time does the alarm ring? That is the question that I've gotten most in the last year. Oh, that's good. That's why it's the first question. <laughs> get it out of the way. Uh, so I've, we usually get up between 3.30 and 4 uh, and start working and G-chatting each other and we go from there. And Daniel's relationship is more of a text message based relationship with me. I, he's not. We're not on G chat terms. I'm not sure if Daniel uses G chat. I've never G chatted him. Before. Yeah, he's always text. Yeah. But for you two, it's G chat. It's not phone calls. At four no, o'clock I don't talk to anybody. Nobody that wants to talk at that time in the morning. And so that means you're going to bed when? I think it totally depends, but usually by ten. Okay. Right? Same with me. But I usually doze off around nine. Uh, <laughs> And then my wife wrestles me back to life around 10. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exciting nightlife of a yeah, playbook right. writer. Uh, and, and then let's just go through the day. What does that mean? You, you uh, start going at 3.30. Do you have any of it written before you go to bed? Are you starting to collect things then? Or is it really just you got to start fresh from, from whatever you see uh, yeah. around then? I mean, I think we try to have an original top, something that's reported uh, what's kind of the ethos of – you know, where people's heads are at on the Hill or in the White House. And so clearly we're making calls, you know, throughout the day. The news cycle doesn't stop. But one of the things we've done over the last year is really expand the product. It's no longer just a morning newsletter. So, right, so you have an audio briefing in the morning, but then we also have a PM uh, power briefing that comes out in the afternoon, which I think just reflects, you know, how fast the news cycle moves right now. Yeah, and we've been actually pleasantly surprised about the audio briefing and as you audio are is the your, way of the future yeah, audio is the way of the future um and it, well it's funny we were just having this discussion when playbook started out in 2007 it used to be um there was no twitter i mean there might have been twitter but twitter didn't play as central. there was twitter in 2007 but it was barely there right? yeah right. it didn't play a central role in like the political ecosystem's life so what was happening at 4 p.m on monday was still fresh for tuesday morning's playbook because Playbook was, in a sense, 
people's Twitter, right? They scrolled through it and they got the news of the day. Now we feel like when we send out playbook by, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, the whole narrative of the day has changed. New news has happened between 7 and when we hit send on the afternoon edition at 1. Um, so we don't feel like we, – we didn't feel like we really had a choice. Uh, we we kind of did sporadic afternoon editions. Went for big news events. But, Do you think that that would be true if Donald Trump were in president? How much of that is because of – uh, the number of things that he has just changed the way that the pace moves. Uh, and I was talking to somebody yesterday who said to me, uh, there, there are like five big stories that I can't even keep track of today. And that uh, I feel like is every day uh, for, for at least those of us in the business, but anybody who's trying to keep up with what's going on. I think in part it is driven by Donald Trump for sure, right? I mean, the fact that he's tweeting, you know, four different tweets, a lot of warnings that have touched on many different topics. They don't have the kind of typical discipline that a White House has where they have their 8 a.m. meeting and that drives one talking point, you know, for the day, maybe even the week, you know, a la President Barack Obama. But I also think it's also just more emblematic of where we're at now in terms of you know, people's attention span is very short. The news, the news's attention span is very short. We were talking to a source uh, recently who said was talking about um, kind of a legislative item and the heat that the right would give uh, over this legislative item, and we kind of just all came to the conclusion: whatever the heat is, it's only a day story, which yeah. is just so different than. Um, everything that we've come to know about uh, politics and, and I mean, it, fe- it feels like it, it, the, the thing that everybody says is nothing matters, right? And to me, that's part, uh, part of that is just sort of giving up from people, right? Like, things matter when people say they matter, right? Or is it, do you, or is it just that there's so much now uh-huh. that nothing actually can matter? I would say this. One of the things we found most useful um, in Playbook, and our readers have found most useful, is... The um, to translate like what the White House is saying and what the realities of I hate to say this town but the realities of Washington <laughs> are like when Steve Stephen Mnuchin I know he's not Steve he's Stephen um, he he do you get nasty emails from uh, Treasury Department officials if you no no I just Steve. know he likes to be called Stephen and not Steve and I. I just Stephen's a little formal for me. I, I feel like I'm really close <laughs> to him. Notes although to I've Treasury only, Secretary now. Don't worry. I've only met the guy like once, but I feel like we had a real bond. Um, no, I think that like when he said we're going to do tax reform by August, I think it's helpful instead of buying into the narrative and just spewing out what the administration says, like so many other people do. Um, I uh, I think it's helpful to say, well, actually, the last time tax reform happened was 1986. CNN barely existed. And it still took two years. And Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, has tried to do tax reform. Kevin Brady's tried uh, with uh, the former Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp to do tax reform. Orrin Hatch has been there for a long time and tried. And it's never gotten off the ground for a reason. And just because you're Stephen Mnuchin and you want to do it by August doesn't mean it's going to happen by August. And it's our – and I just want to say one more thing. It's our job to explain that. And also – um, and I was looking through old playbooks recently, and, and I saw when that happened. Little memory lane. We, I was, <laughs> through the 1986 version. Yeah, the 1980. Yeah, no. I was looking through playbook from the playbook when when he said that the tax reform had happened by August, and it's a point that we should remember. That's so true right now. It's like, why is this difficult? Like, because St- Washington is not real estate. It's not finance. Like, it's a different 
beast. And just because you've been a successful Wall Street financier doesn't mean you understand what, and I'm going to pick a lawmaker, you know, lawmaker X from Louisiana who wants to protect some, you know, tax provision for some big employer in his district. And just because you want to get it done by August doesn't mean it's going to happen. It seems like another part of it, though, is is that uh, from Trump's perception, people say, oh, well, you know, he he thinks of himself as the chairman of the board and board directors. But like, actually, the Trump organization didn't have a board of directors, right? No, he and, owned it. Right. And so he hasn't ever had to deal with other people who had power who weren't uh, heads of other companies or, or other banks or whatever it would be, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I think often, you know, one of the things that I think about is Trump and how they, uh, they approach Washington is a lot of how the tech uh, community has approached Washington, right? We're going to change the way Washington works. We're going to spend $100 million to get immigration reform passed. They quickly found out that just because you have money and you have a, a snazzy label. And, and a goal. <laughs> and a goal. Like, it doesn't happen, right? Just because it sounds good doesn't mean that Washington, kind of by design, moves very slowly. People are, I, I think lawmakers, we often say this, are really self-motivated by their own political preservation. And doing something just because Donald Trump says it isn't going to happen. We talk about this a lot, but there's one thing we always hear from lawmakers is um, I was here before this president and I'll be here after this president. Well, this this is the book. This is, you guys have a book deal. Uh, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. We're excited. Kind so, of. Think. <laughs> You're excited by the deal, but maybe not to actually sit down and write it. <laughs> Barack Obama got 60 million, so I said 80 million for us since we're two people. I mean, would it suffice. seems fair. <laughs> I, I, it's, I, I don't know how many people will read Obama's book. We'll find out. Well, it depends. <laughs> he's been working a lot on it, but he also seems to be spending a lot of time on vacation. So. Yeah, well, maybe he's writing on planes. That's maybe. what I do. But I'm sure his planes have Wi-Fi. So. <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing okay on the planes. Yeah. Uh, but it, the book's about not about Trump exactly. It's about Congress and seeing Trump through the lens of Congress. What, that's, you guys both come from congressional reporting before you were doing playbooks, spend a lot of time still on the Hill, know those people pretty well. What, why is that the way to understand what's going on? I mean, like you said, we spent, I mean, better part of 10 years on the Hill every day kind of slogging it out. Unlike a lot of people who've tried to write good Congress books, uh, you know, they aren't, most of our campaign reporters are white. It's that the Congress is a stepping stone. And we really, I mean, that is our frame of reference. I think one of the reasons why we want to do it is because there's such frustration about the, how broken Washington is, right? And Congress is the everlasting institution. It's not Donald Trump. He's here for four, maybe eight years. And so, the, you know, a lot of people already thought Congress and Washington was broken. The popularity among lawmaker, of lawmakers is at an all-time low. And so, but trying to peel back the layer and get into rooms that people can't get into, understand why deals are either cut or they aren't cut is are really they, what we want to try are to do. They, are they surprised at how dysfunctional things are now that there's a Republican House and a Republican Senate and a Republican president? Has it taken mem- members of Congress by surprise the way that this has yeah, gone? Yes and no. I mean, they're familiar with the fissures, right? They're familiar with the kind of uh, the splits in the party that have always existed that they're just seeing for the first time with they're see, not seeing them for the first time, but they're seeing them for the first time with a Republican in the White House. So they're they're exacerbated. The one th- the thing about um, what we're trying to do and what we hope to do is it's actually an outgrowth of what we've been doing for so long here at Politico, which is I mean one of the things that we always did, and you've been involved in a lot of them, Isaac is is the like TikToks mm-hmm. and Politico for a long. That's time. journalism speak. That's yes. uh, 
something has happened, and now we're going to tell you. Reconstruct. To kind of uh, reconstruct how it happened, how it went down, almost minute by minute, which is where the TikTok thing comes Yeah, so we <laughs> thought it would be cool to do that in a book, and we thought it would be cool to do to reconstruct two years, which are kind of critical years for any president, right? The first two years of an administration. Remember, Barack Obama bailed out the auto industry, passed health care, and all these things are for better or worse, right? Maybe mm-hmm. there's a total – there is a, a – uh, an argument to be made that if Trump gets nothing done in his first four years, he could still get elected, of right? Course. I mean, these these could be politically beneficial, and we're not. This is not a book that's that's going to. This is not a book that's going to be about the reinvention of the Republican Party. This is not a book that's going to be a anti-Trump book or a pro-Trump book. It's actually not a Trump book. It's a book about an institution that we care about and we love, which is Congress. Is it possible, though, given how quickly the news cycle changes to say you're going to have to send the book to the publisher at some point? And then we were knows, actually thinking right? about just texting it to them <laughs> along the way, like letting <laughs> them put piece. together. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the the, the end point as as we see it now is the midterm election and what happens. Is it a referendum on Washington? Are Republicans thrown out? Are they not? And like, what's happened in these special elections? You know, what is the mood of the country? And you know, what does that pretend for twenty twenty? And on your point, the idea that actually we're we are, um, aside from doing two playbooks a day and having to break news within the playbook, but, like, we benefit from the fact that um, the news cycle right now is so sped up because um, we don't have to go to people in the middle of their negotiations and say, please help us understand what's going on. We can go to them the next week or the week after and say, hey, listen, we're, we're writing a book on this. We're going to be writing about this from all different angles. Tell, about it, tell us about it from your perspective. I was talking to a group of people who are in uh, visiting Washington from uh, Kentucky, um, and they asked me to give them a rundown of what was going to get through and passed. And I said, I'm really not sure. Uh, maybe we'll have Obamacare replacement or fix or something. It doesn't seem like we're likely to see tax reform, infrastructure. That, that's my read on it. Does that seem right? I mean, it, 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 your guess about two years in, what big things are we likely to see happen? Well, it's 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 the middle of July now, right? And um, Congress goes out for August recess in a couple of weeks, and then right now there's only, there's fewer than sixty legislative days before 2018. So before basically a political campaign starts anew. So unless they could – And many of them have already started, right? Right, yeah. right. I'm getting press releases every day, at least from Democrats running for House seats. Sure. And, you know, I just – unless they defy political gravity um, – and it's possible they do. But unless they defy that political gravity and do something in the middle of an election year, I just I, – I, I mean if you've, if you've not been watching Washington as many people who write about it now appear to have not, forgotten about the last 10 years – this is a really tough environment to get stuff done. But the, pr- the premise of our book is actually the story behind when things don't get done is just as interesting as the story behind when things do get done. Sometimes it can be more interesting. Yeah, right? for sure. And the personalities and stuff are, uh, are always fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think the likelihood of a massive big bills getting done right now is very unlikely. I, I think you're seeing the health care bill come up against the political realities of these town halls where people are, I mean, there's resoundedly people are upset Does about Does that it. mean that Congress, that Washington just can't get things, big things done anymore ever? Is that, are we, at a, do we have to accept that that's the reality of 
uh, the, the American well, we government. We kind of have a great point. country. Let's just leave it be. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Th- I don't think that that's right. Because I'll tell you, I remember uh, right after the 2014 midterm, somebody who worked in the Obama White House, one of the senior people, said to me, "You'll see now." Mitch McConnell, he's a deal maker. They got through. They wanted to do all of the politics of this. Now we're going to start getting some things through. We'll make deals. Uh, and within two or three months, it was clear that the Republicans and the, uh, the Senate and the House weren't really interested in working with the Obama White House. Uh, now you have a big majority in the House, a majority in the Senate, uh, not filibuster-proof, uh, certainly, uh, a map that favors the Senate Republicans uh, in 2018, and of course a Republican president. It seems like still we, we're talking about things not moving. I mean, the issue for Republicans in the House, in particular, it's it's factional. It's it's the you know that's not just because you have the the majority. They aren't all on the same page on a lot of issues, right? So the House Freedom Caucus has an uh, unusual amount of power. I think it's hard to talk in absolutes. I think one of the things that you try to benefit uh, from covering this place and Washington in particular for a long time is the pendulum swings both ways. So you could also see potentially if Democrats had a great, you know, 2018, them, you know, and Trump moved to try to cut some deals. Really? You think Democrats would work with Donald Trump? Chuck Schumer is just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I, it just, that just doesn't seem realistic. Well, uh, and I think I, I think that there was a big optimism that maybe, you know, because Chuck Schumer was from New York and Donald Trump was from New York, they were going to find some hmm. common ground. And that clearly hasn't happened. Let's talk about your relationship with the White House. Uh, <laughs> what is the relationship with the White House as uh, the authors s- of Playbook? I'd say broadly speaking, um, everybody in town, if they want to reach people in Washington, they go to Playbook for, for stuff. Um, and we've – listen, even though Trump is an outsider, many of the people working for him are not uh, – in st- staff levels, everybody from Sean Spicer, who we've all dealt with for many years, as the was the press secretary for the you know RNC and worked on the Hill and all that stuff. Um, so we try to we we try to deal with everybody even handedly, and we think it doesn't benefit our audience, which looks for, to us for truth and uh, agenda setting uh, analysis. It doesn't really help them if we're taking stuff from one side. Do you find the people who are among those uh, bashing Washington culture, bashing the media, are among the people talking to you? (laughs) Those are (laughs) smiles and laughs. I think that people, I'm choosing my words carefully, I think that people see the value of the playbook in particular can give them in terms of being able to shadow box and forecast what they want to do and you know who they're meeting with when the meetings are important uh, and and what their message of that moment is and I think and not even just at the White House but I also think like at the agencies in particular a lot of those people are people we've dealt with for is a it, long time do you think do you feel comfortable playbook is well read in the West Wing yes yes do you hear from them when you put things in there yes you hear from the president Every day on television and on Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I think also, um, I think a lot, listen, we're, we benefit from the fact that Playbook has been part of the ecosystem for so long. It was, it was such a, a dramatic pause that you guys Yeah, I was, trying to, <laughs> I was trying to think about how to respond to that. Um, do you think, do you know he reads it? I don't know about, I can't speak to his everyday reading habits. Um, but uh, I think that we've, we benefit from the fact that uh, 
Like this, let's not sell it short. Playbook has been read in DC now for ten years, um, and has been a part. And the one funny thing that we've always found is that people are feel very open to give their opinion about. It's, it's much more, you know, the kind of uh, the concept of roll over and read is what people do, right? They wake up and they look at playbook, and so there's this intimacy that I think, as a reporter, was one of the things that we were, I in particular, was very surprised by that, you know, they feel like they know you. You're also writing in a really different voice and a style. Um, and so there's a lot of feedback that comes with that, for better or for worse, that people have a lot of thoughts about whether you get it right or you don't get it right. And they come back to you right away. The uh, Playbook yeah. lands, usually, I, I feel like, except on holidays and uh, some weekends. Uh, Every weekend. But, yeah. So, yeah, 637. Yeah. yeah. Right, a little um, bit later on on holidays. Yes, yeah. which is okay. We have I'm weekend hours. Yeah. We have weekend 365 hours. days a year. You got to give us a couple hours every once in a while. Yeah. And when when you guys are concerned, are you do you take time off and pass the baton back and forth? How does that part of it work? We don't. No, we do it together. I think both of us feel like um, we we both want to have our hands in it if if our names are on it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's and, also a good check and balance. I mean, Jake and I have written together now for like six years, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And I feel like what, you know, my strengths and weaknesses, I think we kind of balance each other out. And so it's in particular when you're trying to think about what this means, the dynamics, it's really nice to have two brains at least kind of and Daniel, going who back has, and forth. And Daniel, too, who yeah. has like an almost an irreplaceable um, knowledge of the playbook community and who's who and who – would be interested in what and and you know and and that's super important because playbook is nothing if not for the people who read it you know you guys were friends and uh, now we hate on each other right <laughs> <laughs> but you you spent a lot of time uh, personally and professionally together uh, before you started writing playbook it's been a year what have you learned Anna what what <laughs> you learned about Jake in that time that I have an unusually uh, uh, bad temper. <laughs> <laughs> Is that really a surprise to anyone, Jake? Well, I, I will say this. I think this is true for both of us. Um, like, we bo- we feel like now we're running a business. You know? It's so much more than just like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. We have this really good idea for a story. We could turn it around by 5 and, like, maybe 6 if Mike Zappler will let us, you know, push it by a couple <laughs> minutes. Our con- congressional editor. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing. We've got to, like, you know, flex new muscles in that sense, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's it's really like running a small business. I mean, it's and the focus in particular on audience um, and audience development and making sure that you know we're taking playbook uh, product wise to a new level, but also just in terms of uh, you know audience in that reach. But I think, I mean, listen, I I think I knew Jake really well. I don't know that there's some, some like epiphany moment, like you know, nothing at four forty five in the morning when you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I think. I, you know, he's got a lot of confidence, he always has, but I think that, you know, every day is that's a grind. A, yeah, that's a, a, a politically correct way of saying <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> no, I think, but I think it's worked out really well in a lot of ways. We kind of have different strengths and, and interests in some ways. And one of the big things I would say, too, is just like, I mean, we do so many events now. That is a, I, I think we've grown like as a unit in terms of like the comfort level of that, don't you think? Yeah, it's a tough thing. Uh, and Mike Allen, who preceded us at uh, in doing playbook um, is very skilled at events mm-hmm. which is not something that we ever even tried to do before well I guess we did a few with Mike so. in the in a before playbook but um, being able to hold an audience for you know an hour with a newsmaker is difficult at times and um, and especially when you are 
in a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles or Austin where people have a really intense interest in politics, but um, they don't necessarily know what the CR is, right? The government, <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, that's been an interesting skill to try to develop. So Anna says confidence uh, is what she's uh, not mm-hmm. not really been shocked by with you. Uh, um, what about you, towards Anna? No, Anna's very good at at thinking strategically about the product, which is not my strength. I don't. I mean, I uh, thinking about where playbook is not read that it should be read, and um, where we have opportunities for growth and for. Like, let's face it, this is a business, right? So we we want to make money. So, um, so like, where we have opportunities editorially for growth, but also business-wise for growth, and that's not our responsibility, but we don't – we have to pay attention to who should be reading us, right? That's the, both a business question and an editorial question. Um, like, uh, so places like Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Austin, Denver, Atlanta, Miami, New York, Boston, you know, Chicago, places like that that have – huge companies and big uh, and a great political culture too so uh, that's something that, that she's you good find as, as you're going around the country I, my experience is that people still uh, they're, they're obsessed with what's happening in Washington in ways that they never were yes. before six months ago well the campaign was intense <laughs> so maybe before a year ago uh, but they still end up being both uh, really aware of some of the details of it, but confused by why uh, things are happening in the way that they are. Yes. Uh, and, and and trying to make sense of this president, the people who work for him, more than uh, more than seems normal. It was, it, like, it, Obama, people were, were always trying to figure him out. Mm-hmm. And there was something about Obama that always defied being figured out somehow. Uh, maybe that's true of any president, even though more words were written about Barack Obama over the course of 10 years than about any other human being on the planet were uh, at a pace to uh, exceed that for Donald Trump. I would say two things. I would say, like, let's forget about the president, the presidency for a second. And my theory and one of our theories in writing this book is actually a better story than the presidency is – Congress. I mean, I think it's eminently more fascinating in many respects. I think what people oftentimes don't understand, and even people who are intensely interested in politics, what people sometimes don't understand is that there's a different incentive structure in politics than in any other walk of life, right? You're like, for example, many people thought member of Congress, Gabby Giffords gets shot in the head. It's time to pass new gun laws. Like, no, that's not how the broad Broadly speaking, that's not or how like Newtown, right? I mean, a bunch right. of kids get mowed down in a school. Um, had you, time to pass new gun laws? No, that's not how it works. Um, and people are oftentimes confused by that. And uh, I, don't you think that's right, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's what motivates members of Congress, and even though they might have a D or an R behind them, often are, it's very, very different. But I agree with you. I think you know, we travel a lot. I'm on the road a ton um, to a lot of different places, and I think we're at, We have a playbook jet now. No, yeah, right. I, yeah, maybe you keep having all these perks that I don't hear. <laughs> I don't seem to get. I'm, you know, in coach. Jake keeps the jet to himself. Seriously. Yes. Uh, no, but I would say it depends on where you are in terms of, I mean, there's so, the 
country is so divided in terms of how they consume news and the reality with which they see what's happening in Washington. And so if you're in California, it's like the 10 stages of grief that are happening, right? You know, <laughs> the disbelief is happening, anger, you know, sadness, and, you know, where they're there. But, you know, if you're in areas that are, you know, more conservative, you know, it's, it's a much different conversation you're having. And I was just actually uh, out at Aspen Ideas, not that that's a huge, like, conservative enclave, but there was a bunch of conservatives, and we were talking. I was on a panel with a bunch of other journalists, and there was a real feisty, uh, to say the least, conversation about the people's frustration with the news and frustration with the coverage and not giving this president enough of a chance. So explain, uh, let's close with this, explain this White House, explain this president in a way that people are not seeing. That's an interesting question. Um, I will say this, and this is like a, we expect this to be a pretty big component of what we write about in our in our book, or it has been about the stuff we've already written. Um, this president has done an incredibly good job at building relationships outside of the leadership, mm-hmm. um, and you could you could see that, and we hear about that all the time from the people that we both talk to for the book and people at the he White House. Pays so much more attention to them, and people knock him for doing the cable for watching a lot of cable news, but like. And this will be in the book, and this isn't like a particularly interesting detail, but a member of Congress, I, we've heard countless stories about members of Congress saying they've walked into the White House and the president's like, good job on CNN, MSNBC, whatever. And to, for a guy watches a lot of cable, clearly, I mean, or else he wouldn't know that. Uh, so daytime cable is like a main event now. The thing that's kind of striking to us and we've had this conversation. The members of Congress are, are like fighting to get on. It's like so rank they and can... file, and then like Congressman X from nowhere is all of a sudden asked to the White House to talk about whatever he was talking about. And, and also think about this: that like MSNBC and CNN, which are the two main daytime or the two main political cable uh, mainstays, they're broadcasting from outside the Capitol. Well, and Fox too. That, that's but CBS, uh, sorry, CNN and MSNBC are literally doing live shows from outside of the Capitol. Fox is, is also uh, Fox is a, a certainly the, one of the cable mainstays. They don't do the same kind of. A lot of their shows are out of New York during the day, so I didn't think of them as part of the question. It's like politics is pop culture. Right. I mean, in really, in a way, and I think that Donald Trump kind of hits the zeitgeist. Do they? Do the members the of Congress? Do they like him? Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of them find him pretty easy to talk to in a, in a personal level. I think Very they're charming. sometimes frustrated, fl- frustrated by the hot flashes of of whatever the news of the yeah, day what, is, or what plays for his base and his kind of opposition. To, you know what? You know the tweets about Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC. I think there is a frustration that there's a, a distraction uh, effort that but they have a big they, job. It, it, they uh, Republican members of Congress all. Uh, are working with him, and that yet they're frustrated by him. Come on. That is literally every presidency in Congress <laughs> ever. <laughs> but I would say, I would say um, that's where he get, the, his relationship building, and it hasn't, so it's early kind of in his presidency, it hasn't really borne any fruit at this point, but it will, it might at some point, and... Um, Change it from it will to it might. Yeah, I, I don't want to, I, I, we, we always say we get out, we've gotten out of the, the prediction business, um, the dangerous business to be a yeah, journalist. And, and um, he's just he he's very attentive to lo- like I couldn't I don't think that President Obama knew many like rank and file house guys I personally. Think the way I, would I don't be- think he he tried to. Yeah, no, definitely but, not. But what I would say is to me it's what someone was telling us about Mar-a-Lago when he goes back he wants to know how many covers have been turned. You know he's in he's been in 
the uh, hospitality industry for so long, it's all about service in some ways, right? And it's knowing who your customers are and all that kind of stuff. And you can see that, you know, kind of servicing members of Congress in a different way than maybe the typical politician. Do they respect him? Respect it. I mean, listen, I think any member of Congress is going to be kind of hostile to the to the, any administration just because they even feel, a Republican member yeah, to a Republican sure, president. Think about it. They think they have the best ideas. They've like we've been here before. You, we don't need to listen to this guy. And that wasn't true with Obama too, as you'll remember quite well. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm sure that's a dynamic with every presidency because as as our colleague John Bresnan always says, you have to really there has to be something special about somebody who lives in a district and thinks, I am the best of this, these 600,000 people <laughs> to represent them in Washington. Right. And <laughs> Just as there has to be something really about a person to say, I should be the president yeah. of the United of, States. Right, totally. hundreds of I millions. should be in charge of the country and the world. Right, right. right. So um, they respect, <laughs> I think they respect the office, but they also respect themselves and think that they are the best of, it, of everybody else. But that's, is it the same as the dynamic with any presidency? Or do they have a different feeling uh, toward Trump uh, uh, in terms of respect? Is it respect? Because that's where, where people land is, I don't know if you did it on purpose, Jake, but Uh-oh. respect the office uh, <laughs> is where people will, will often land on this. <clears throat> Not respect the person, respect Donald Trump. Certainly you see that amongst a lot of the uh, Democratic critics, they'll say, well, whatever, uh, my problems are all with Donald Trump, but I respect the office. Uh, do I Republicans think, feel that way? I think that they don't, I think many members of Congress deal in the immediate, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So if they have to respect him at the moment, they do. Um, I don't think, I think actually that's one thing that gets that gets um, overstated is like, yes, all the hot lights are on the White House, but Congress kind of exists in a bubble in a lot of senses. Don't you think so, Anna? Or am I wrong? Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I get what you're pointing at. I guess I don't, I haven't asked all 100, 435 members of Congress if they respect Donald Trump. Uh, I think you get varying answers on every single different day based on what's happening right and then it, and there. For, it seems like for Trump that would be okay as long as they respect him on the day that he needs them to respect him. Yeah, and I mean, let's say, who knows, they get healthier done, and then maybe there is a tax package right. of some, or tax cuts of some sort. You know, I, I think if they get some wins, they certainly would respect that. And I think they do definitely respect the fact that he beat all the odds and was elected president. Yeah, these guys, think about it, these are people who run elections every two years. So they, they want him to come campaign for them next year. Good question. Many of them, yes, because as the White House likes to say, I mean, the president is actually more popular than most Republicans in their district. <laughs> Some no. I mean, it varies district by district. But um, I actually think that's one of the missed opportunities of this presidency, uh, from not from my perspective, but from members of Congress who... Republicans say, like, if the president just did, like, and I, I'm not, this might be unrealistic, but just did very tightly trained uh, rallies where he rallied people to his side and rallied constituents. And Barack Obama tried to do this and it wasn't successful either. But um, if he did that, you might have more success because um, he's a great camp. He's a great rallier. Yeah, but the reason why the rallies get covered is because he veers off into things that are 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 not uh, on script, right? I mean, that's, he's not great uh, in staying on the script and and no. breaks through I, more. Or maybe that is the script, right? And I would say that because not not being great sticking on script did get him elected it, president. Right? But what I would say is, I think if you have the political calculus of a member of Congress, the, the cost you know benefit analysis of. If he's not going to stay on script to come to your your uh, district, is that's a tricky equation. All right, Jake <laughs> Sherman, Anna Palmer, thanks for taking the time. Congratulations on 
one-year playbook and a book deal. Thank Not you. Bad. <laughs> Thank you. That was Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer, our Politico playbook authors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and our intern, Rachel Cusick. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes, including that one coming up with North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, and rate us. Follow me on Twitter and on Facebook, at Isaac Dobert. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.